ECO Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Linda Leitner. And I'm Glenn Leitner. The Habitat Network, an online resource housed at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, will end on January 31, 2019. The Habitat Network allowed users to map their backyards and submit data on habitat loss and revitalization across the country. The website also included tips for incorporating native plants and food sources for birds and other wildlife in backyard design. While this free resource was funded by the National Science Foundation for the past nine years, the grant period has ended. Neither the Cornell Lab of Ornithology nor its partner, the Nature Conservancy, succeeded in securing the necessary funds to keep it going. New and improved mapping tools called YardMap were only just made available this past November. But after January 31st, the resource will go offline with maps and data to be stored at the Cornell Lab unless or until it can be funded again. Based on data collected by the Habitat Network, the quote, average American yard, end quote, is 60% lawn, 19% impervious surface such as concrete, 17% ornamentals, flowers and shrubs, and 3% vegetable beds. The combined lawn and impervious surface total, or nearly 80% of the average lawn, are largely unusable to birds and other wildlife. During the government shutdown, the Trump administration issued multiple oil drilling permits. Three environmental groups lodged a formal objection to the 153 permits granted by the Bureau of Land Management since the shutdown that began on December 22nd. The environmental groups claim that by issuing the oil drilling permits, the Bureau violated a federal spending law and legal requirements for public commentary. The groups argue that the Bureau is bypassing mandatory public input. During the shutdown, people couldn't discuss drilling permits with regulators, visit Bureau offices to view applications, or file public comments. Selling giraffe body parts is lucrative business and it's legal in the U.S. The population of the world's tallest animal fell 35% in the last three decades. Nevertheless, their hooves, horns, skin, bones, and other body parts are sold in the U.S. The Humane Society issued a new study along with its international affiliate concluding that almost 40,000 giraffe body parts from 4,000 individual giraffes have been imported into the U.S. over the last decade. Environmental advocacy groups are pressuring the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to protect giraffes by listing them under the Endangered Species Act. A listing under the Endangered Species Act would mean that imports, exports, and interstate commerce of giraffes or their body parts will require a permit from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. 
Before granting a permit, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service determines if the action will enhance or harm the survival of the species. There is good news about the endangered North Atlantic right whales. Three calves have been born so far this calving season, and the calving season goes into February. After the calving season in Florida is over, the North Atlantic right whales move north. They typically spend part of April in Massachusetts Bay before moving farther north and into Canada. The birth of three right whales is encouraging, but insufficient to stabilize the North Atlantic population, which is currently slightly over 400. Healthy breeding females will give birth every three to five years. No calves were born last year. The Met Office, the United Kingdom's National Weather Service, predicts that the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in 2019 will be one of the biggest on record. The Met Office has one of the best track records for climate prediction accuracy. They predict that carbon dioxide will jump this year because of the Pacific Ocean, which is expected to be warmer. The warmer ocean will create hotter, drier conditions on land. The Met Office expects trees and other plants will be more stressed and therefore will take up less carbon dioxide. Another factor in the Met Office prediction is the increase in deforestation, particularly in Brazil, Colombia, Bolivia, and Peru. Globally, it is estimated that 15 billion trees are cut every year. For WFHB, I'm Glenn Leitner. And I'm Linda Leitner. Support for EcoReport comes from Blooming Foods Market in Delhi, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery store since 1976, offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market in Delhi on East 3rd near College Mall, West 6th near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. And now it's time for the secret life of fungi. There's a lot of good news in the research and practice of mycoremediation, a term coined by research mycologist Paul Stamets. Mycoremediation is the application of fungal mycelium using select species targeted to heal damaged habitats. I'm Kaylin Huffman Brower, and I'll describe more about how mycoremediation works in this segment of The Secret Life of Fungi. Mycoremediation is a form of bioremediation, the process of decontaminating a toxic environment using natural methods. Myco is Greek for fungi, also pronounced fungi, and commonly known as mushrooms. Mycoremediation employs the natural action of the largely hidden, root-like structure of mushrooms, known as mycelium. Mycelial threads, called hypha, spread in vast networks throughout soil and fallen wood. Along the way, they protect themselves by neutralizing harmful bacteria. Also along their path, they naturally excrete digestive enzymes and acids. Some fungi are particularly adept at digesting dead wood. You've seen the turkey tails, the ringed mushrooms sprouting from logs in the woods and along city streets. Their powerful digestive juices work at the molecular level, disassembling the long-chain carbon and hydrogen molecules of cellulose and lignin, the structural components of wood. And here's what's so spectacular about these particular varieties of fungi. 
their digestive enzymes also break down toxins with similar chemical bonds, notably fossil fuel products, herbicides, and pesticides. Fungi are nature's decomposers, so breaking down and neutralizing toxins becomes a part of their job description in our Anthropocene age. Mycoremediation can be as simple as sprinkling spores on the ground of a fossil fuel-contaminated truck lot. Some habitats require a more structured application. There are mycofiltration techniques that can address chemical toxins, silt, and pathogens, such as protozoa, bacteria, and viruses. For example, in locations where livestock pens are near waterways and lead to E. coli contamination, Mycoremediation looks like rows of burlap bags stuffed with straw or wood chips and inoculated with oyster mushrooms. Once the mycelium runs through the growing medium, the bags are stacked in berms at choke points across the runoff ditch to filter the water. Upstream, near the livestock, E. coli proliferates. Downstream, past the myceliated bags, the runoff water is decontaminated in the oyster mushroom burn, and aquatic and coastal species of the ecosystem once again flourish. In addition to remediating E. coli and fossil fuel chemical spills, there are fungi species that detoxify many industrial pollutants, including heavy metal contamination and radiation poisoning. Though the results have not yet been as successful as for other toxins, there is some research using turkey tail mushrooms to remediate PCB contamination. I'm Kaylin Huffman Brower for The Secret Life of Fungi, here on EcoReport. In this week's eco-feature, WFHB's Norm Holy interviews Robert Colangelo, the founding farmer of Green Sense Farms in Portage, Indiana. Green Sense Farms is one of the first indoor vertical farms. We grow our produce and seedlings indoors in stacking hydroponic tubs 24 feet tall. Our real advantage is that we can grow a high density of produce year-round in a controlled environment. We begin by building a room within a room. So think of walking into a large walk-in cooler. Inside that room, we have pallet racking in which we put four by eight foot uh, tubs. And in the tubs, 
We have trays that grow our plants. We have a, a sophisticated, custom-designed, computer-controlled system that delivers the precise inputs into the, the farm. So our CO2, our LED lights, our nutrient, our water, our temperature, our humidity are all precisely controlled to provide optimum growing conditions for the plants so that they can grow year-round consistently at the highest quality. Are you enhancing the CO2 content of the air in the building? In our grow room, we enrich our plant growth by adding CO2 somewhere between six to 800 parts per million. That allows us to grow heavier plants quicker at a higher quality. So it increases the biomass of the plant and it speeds up the growth time because as we all learned in science class, uh, CO2 and light are part of the photosynthesis process. We grow seedlings that can be transplanted into field farms or greenhouses. And then we grow uh, lettuces. We grow baby greens, such as kale, arugula, Swiss chard. And then we grow herbs and microgreens. And where are you selling those? I understand that Whole Foods is one of your clients. Uh, Whole Foods was one of our clients. What we have learned is that we put our farm in Portage, Indiana, next to the, near the Whole Foods Distribution Center. It uh, served approximately 50 stores in eight states, and it was in Munster, Indiana, about 20 minutes away. What we quickly learned was that being 20 minutes away could have been uh, 20 hours away. We still had to go uh, through security, we still had to go through logistics and arrange and schedule trucking. And sometimes our plants could get cross-docked in the wrong coolers. It would impact their perishability. So what we've learned is all future farms, we want to build at or near our customer uh, locations. We're out building farms at grocery store distribution centers, college and corporate campuses, and food processing facilities, wherever large volumes of leafy greens are used on a daily basis. How long does it take a, a person to learn how to do this? We have many different job categories. An entry-level position would be a farmer, where they learn to how to seed the plants, how to germinate them, how to work in the nursery, how to transplant them to the growth towers, how to harvest, pack, and ship. Uh, those jobs take about somewhere between one to three months to master. And then it gets a little bit more sophisticated where we have growers that learn how to operate all our complex instrumentation and make sure that they are, are the plant whisperer. They can look at the plant and see if it's getting everything it needs, and if not, you know, make adjustments to make sure that the plants grow healthy and strong with the highest quality. Then we also have production managers that uh, schedule seeding and harvesting and make sure that the packing matches the customer orders and can manage the labor pool. Then we have uh, accounting and back office support. Then we have marketing and sales. We have senior management that does project development. So they design and build and turn on the farms. Then lastly, we have R&D that where we're constantly looking at, at improvements to the systems and improvements 
to growing different and new cultivars. So depending on where you look, the, the higher level functions can take years of training to master, and the entry level ones are just a few months. Sounds terrific, especially managing all the, the computer stuff uh, and, and knowing how much nutrient to add is pretty sophisticated, I assume. Yes, we use a fertigator, which is a, a computer-controlled mechanical device that mixes our nutrient mix and combines with our irrigation uh, water to uh, deliver uh, cycles of irrigation to the plants. And so that's all computer-controlled, but understanding how to mix up our stock tanks uh, to get them to the right concentrations with the right nutrient mix and to program the fertigator is definitely a skill. I'm curious about yearly production. Typically, we have built a modular farm that's scalable, and that modular farm is 20,000 square feet in a footprint. That allows us to go from seed to supermarket, so that's the seeding, the germination area, the nursery, the grow towers, the packing, the shipping, you know, storage, and cleaning. And that module has two climate-controlled grow rooms that allow us to grow a wider variety of crops. If we need extra capacity, then we could add another grow room. So we like to grow in monocrops, so each grow room preferably has a single crop that's the same age. This way, we can give it exactly what it needs. As you start to get more crops in one room, it gets harder and harder to create perfect conditions you have to compromise. So, for example, in our lettuce room, which is roughly 4,000 square feet, we're able to produce somewhere between 15 to 20,000 heads per week. In our herb room, if we just grew basil plants, we would be able to produce somewhere between 20 to 25,000 basil plants per week, which is quite high output for a very small facility. I would say so, indeed. Are there issues with disease? There's two issues that you have to be concerned with when you bring growing indoors. One is pests, and two is disease. On the pest side, we implement an integrated pest management strategy, which uh, starts by limiting access to our farm, and second, by making sure the farm is always clean and sanitary so that uh, plants aren't in there very long and you always clean up the farm. That's the best way to control your, your bugs. The second way is for disease, we deal with air purification and water purification. We use an advanced uh, system that allows us to filter our return water so that we can recycle it almost 100%. And then we hit it with an ozone, which kills any pathogens, and it breaks down into oxygen so that we're able to achieve very high dissolved oxygen ratios between 25 to 35 parts per million which creates a very aerobic condition, which promotes healthy root growth and staves off disease. Those are our two weapons to keep pests and disease under control. We really see this, the future of farming, but more importantly, we really see you know, the next generation of graduates uh, from college as being the future of farming. You know, th There's a whole generation of very smart young people that know how to use technology and that's how we're going to feed a growing population with less inputs, is by harnessing that energy with technology to grow more with less. So thank you very much for your time.
and allowing you to share our thoughts with your listeners. Uh, thank you very much. Are you looking for a way to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. Give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. Up next is In Nature. This is In Nature. I am Juliana Daly, and today's In Nature segment is about the Eastern Whippoorwill, made famous in folk songs, poem, and literature for their endless chanting on summer nights. They are easy to hear, but hard to see. Their brindled plumage blends perfectly with the grain-brown leaf litter of the open forest where they breed and roost. These common birds are on the decline in parts of their range as open forests are converted to suburbs or agriculture. They are strictly nocturnal. They feed exclusively on insects including moths, beetles, grasshoppers, ants, bees, wasps, and fireflies. They spend the day sitting motionless becoming active only at dusk. Whippoorwills time their nesting so that chicks will hatch about 10 days before the full moon, when the parents have more time and moonlight to catch food for them. The eastern whippoorwill is on the 2016 State of North America's Birds Watch List, which includes bird species that are most at risk of extinction without significant conservation actions to reverse declines and reduce threats. You've been listening to In Nature.
This week in our listening area, the third annual winter dog hike will take place at Brown County State Park on Saturday, February 2nd from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Explore the woods of Brown County State Park on a scavenger hunt with your dog. A seed starting basics class will be offered at Hilltop Gardens at IU on Wednesday, February 6th from 6 to 7.30 p.m. The class explores seed starting. You will also learn about scheduling, varietal selections, lighting options, soil mixes, and much more. Register by February 5th by emailing mullins at bloomington.in.gov or call 812-349-3704. There will be a winter tree identification workshop at Spring Mills State Park on Thursday, February 7th from 6 to 8 p.m. and also on Saturday, February 9th, beginning at 9 a.m. You will have the opportunity, both in class and outdoors, to learn how to identify trees using twigs, nuts, seeds, bark, and other characteristics. You are not required to attend both sessions. To register, call Tina Ligman at 812-278-0139 or email tdligman at att.net. The Mysterious Hills Winter Hike Series continues on Saturday, February 9th at Brown County State Park from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Meet at the Nature Center to carpool to the trailhead, where you will hike along Horse Trail A for about one and a half miles, then switch onto Trail 17 for another half mile to a quarry. The trails are quite rugged and sloppy. Wear sturdy boots and bring a hiking stick. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, Rebecca Mueller, and Wes Martin. This week's In Nature was written by Juliana Daly and Jan Walker edited the segment. Secret Life of Fungi was produced by Kaylin Huffman Brower. Cindy Bollet edited the segment. Janice Jaffe composed and produced the theme music for Secret Life of Fungi. Andrew Brown, Kaylin Hoffman Brower, Jan Walker, and Wes Martin edited the script. Norm Holy produced our feature, and Jan Walker edited it. Kirsten Payton engineered today's show. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Jan Walker is our producer, and executive producer is Wes Martin. Tune in on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can also access news, feature audio, in nature and get out and hike episodes anytime at wfhb.org. For WFHB, I'm Linda Leitner. And I'm Glenn Leitner. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. 
available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. EcoReport is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the EcoReport staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org. Thank you.